Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Rise and Fall, based out of our study on the first four chapters of First Samuel. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. We're going to start a new series this morning. We're going to be in First Samuel chapter 1. We're calling this series um, Rise and Fall. There, oh, look at there it is on the screen. You see that media right there, Rise and Fall. We're going to work the next couple weeks through Samuel 1 through 4. I felt like God put this on my heart to talk about. And what we get in Samuel 1, 1 Samuel 1 through 4 is the call, well, really the birth and the call of Samuel. And in this, it's simultaneously what we're getting is the fall and the death of Eli. And so one commentator said this, as you read the book of 1 Samuel, you should read it as if there are two big X's laying over the narrative line, the plot line. Because in one sense, the whole first little chunk is about Eli falling, is about Eli's destruction. And in another sense, the whole first chunk is about Samuel's rise to influence and to power. And when you read the second half, which we won't j- jump into in this series, you see the same thing. You see it being about Saul's decline, Saul falling. And at the same moment, you're watching um, David rise to power and influence. So lay two X's over the narrative line, and that's what we have. We have an old man of God, Eli, um, and his family legacy being removed as God raises and anoints a new man of power. I want to lay two text against each other from the first four chapters, and this will kind of lay a foundation of what we're going to try to talk about. First, First Samuel chapter 3, 19 says this about Samuel, that Samuel grew and the Lord was with him, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. Not one of Samuel's prophetic words ever fell to the ground. He prophesied with precision, he prophesied with accuracy, and the scripture goes on to say that all the people knew that it was confirmed that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord, because if Samuel spoke it, it was sure to come to pass. Second, I want to read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 31. This is a prophetic word given to Eli. The time is coming when I'll cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. So what we see in the first four chapters of the first Samuel is that Samuel is given such an extreme anointing that everything he speaks comes to pass. And all the people know that he's a man of God. Not a word falls to the ground. And in the same sense, we see Eli, this seasoned man of God, this man of prestige, well acquainted with spiritual matters. And yet the prophetic word given to him is, I will cut you short. No one in your, in your family lineage will see old age. So the question becomes, what's here for us to learn? And obviously we want to be Samuel, right? We don't want to be Eli. We want to be a little Samuel-like. And it's our prayer ultimately that we walk away from this series Christ-like, Christ-centered, with a greater devotion, passion, burn in our guts for his gospel the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We honor your word as true, as inspired and inerrant. We ask that you would use it this morning to mold us, convict us, stir us, speak whatever it is you need to speak. 
Guard my lips, God. Anoint this time. We're desperate for you. We really, really want more of you. We're really hungry. Our hearts ache, God. Speak to us. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, somebody say amen. Hallelujah. Susanna Wesley was the youngest of 25 kids. She was the youngest of 25. If you didn't know, that's a lot of kids. Her father was a Puritan pastor. They say that from his, from his young years, five or six, he started reading 20 books of the Bible a day. Chapters, not books, 20 chapters. She loved to hang out in his library, loved his books. She was a ferocious reader. She married Samuel Wesley, Church of England pastor, when she was 19 years old. And they had 19 kids, nine of them uh, dying shortly after birth. Only 10 surviving. One instance, a maid accidentally smothered one of her babies. And we know from history that John Wesley nearly died in a house fire, the History says that neighbors came outside of his house. They saw him upstairs and the fire burning low and they kind of got on each other's shoulders. They held each other up to be able to pull John Wesley out of the house for the rest of his life. He would call himself a brand plucked from fire. Her husband, Sam, was an itinerant preacher for seasons, meaning he traveled and preached. He wasn't always home. One occasion he's gone for over a year. They say he's bad with money. He went to jail once for not paying his debt. Spent a lot of his family money publishing a, a work that he wrote that nobody really read. One time while Sam was away preaching, Susanna began to read sermons to her kids. Her, her dad was a pastor as well. She would read her dad's sermons or Sam's sermons. And eventually 200 people began to show up at her house to hear her. And that was a bit scandalous for a woman in the 18th century to be leading a meeting for the church. She was determined, fervent, always reading, always learning. She once said, there are two things to do about the gospel, believe it and behave it. And that's, that's John Wesley, if I've ever heard it. Believe it and behave it. She says, we must know God experientially, for unless the heart perceive and know him to be the supreme good, her only happiness. She goes on and says, unless the soul feel and acknowledge that she can have no repose, no peace, no joy, but in loving and being loved by him. She says, know him intellectually and know him experientially. It's important that you learn of him and experience him. And, and John Wesley, when he was just six or seven, you know, a little guy, um, used to tell everyone, I'll never get married because I'll never find a woman as good as my dad did, as good as my father had. And later he made this comment, which really is profound, and I think he meant it. He said, I learned more about Christianity from my mother than all the theologians in England. He's Oxford trained, remember? <laughs> it's a pretty profound statement. She was busy raising a house full of kids. I'm over here sinking with three, just in case y'all didn't know. We sinking. If you want to come wipe some butts, let me know. And I can put you on some butts. But she kept the house, taught the kids, handled the majority of their education, taught them Latin, classical education. 
But one thing she also did is she took an hour a week out of her schedule and devoted it in conversation for each of her kids separately. So for an hour a week, she would sit down with her kids. She would talk about the Lord, what the Lord's speaking in their life. How are you doing? What are your dreams? They would pray. She would sit down for an hour a week with Charles Wesley, you know, this prolific, artistic mind. He'd go on to write something like over 6,000 hymns. Can you imagine sitting down with a young man like that in his teen years and spending an hour a day and just hear the thoughts that roll out of his head? But although she was a housewife, she was one disciple, whoever she could disciple. And she's got nine, ten kids to take care of, but they got to listen to her. She was committed to prayer. The history also tells us that at times she would struggle to find a secret place, a place to prayer. So she would put her apron, her cooking apron, she would put it over her head and she would sit down right in the middle of the room. And everybody in the family knew if the apron's over the head, I'm praying and don't bother me. I put my apron over my head and just cry because I can't do it anymore. I can't keep up. History calls her the mother of Methodism. She was a teacher, genuine love, lover of Jesus, and she changed history, her character, work ethic, and passion are reproduced in the lives of her children, two of which literally changed the narrative of world history. And I'm not sure that she ever thought of herself as profoundly influential. I'm not sure she ever thought of herself as someone who was incredibly successful or someone to be admired. She's a housewife, but she's a housewife who burns for Jesus, who ached to really know him. She made disciples where she could make disciples. As we begin our series, looking at the life of Samuel, beginning to look at his life, the scriptures first make us look at Hannah, his mother. We find her barren, tired, humiliated, worn down. She has no means of influence. She's not revered. She has no position of prestige. No one looks to the woman for spiritual guidance. She's common, just a barren, broken, spirited woman. Many probably think she's cursed because God won't give her a child. Maybe this is judgment for some hidden sin that's yet to be exposed. God's judging her by not giving her the desire of her heart. No one in her day would describe her as a spiritual giant. But we'll watch this morning as the narrative intentionally places Hannah side by side with Eli. And what the scriptures tell us is that Hannah, this broken, barren woman, her spirituality far exceeds the seasoned man of God. And what we'll see is a man of God in the temple who doesn't even know the sound of prayer and a broken woman who's barren and humiliated and tired. God will use her who has no influence to influence the rest of the history of God's people. Use that barren womb to bring the one who's to bring about change. So let's read our passage this morning. First Samuel 1, we're going to start in verse 1 through 20. There was a certain man of Ramathiah and Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, and the son and an Ephratite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests to the Lord. 
on the day when, when on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. She continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice wasn't heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. She said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went away, ate her food, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called him Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This passage is rather dramatic. and Like so many times in Scripture, sometimes I think we read it quick and miss all the drama. But Hannah's found herself in a bit of a predicament. Bearing children is an incredibly important role for a woman in her society. And providing an heir to her husband is her first priority and she's unable. Many commentators suggest, and I agree, that Elkanah marries Peninnah because the wife he loves is barren. So he marries the woman he loves only to find that she's barren. And socially, a man has to have an heir. So he marries another woman to give him children. The passage on two occasions tells us that it's the Lord that's closed her womb. She's heartbroken. She's tired. It's clearly been years. Elkanah gave portion to all Peninnah's sons and daughters. If Elkanah did marry Hannah, did marry Peninnah because Hannah was barren, surely he gave it a period of time to see if Hannah could have children. She couldn't have children, so he marries Peninnah. And then the text says that Peninnah has sons with an S and daughters with an S. So we can assume it's been years, maybe even decades of want and of ache and of feeling insufficient and feeling like God's not blessing her. For decades, Hannah has watched Peninnah prosper. I imagine she helped with the kids. She smiled, tried to mask her pain, bandage her heartache. She's waited, prayed, anticipated, been expectant only to be devastated. If you struggled with infertility or had a friend or family member who has, you know what it's like for them to hope every month, to anticipate, to pray. Maybe this is the month and to get excited and to get giddy only to be dropped down. She's devastated, worn out. Her sense of self-worth has been assaulted, but I don't think we find her bitter. 
although I'm sure that's something she worked through some years ago. I don't think we see her angry at God for closing her womb. I think she's settled those feelings of frustration. We find her broken. We find her desperate, unashamedly desperate in prayer. We find her honest, low, still knocking on the gates of heaven. Even though it's been years, she's still petitioning God. She's still knocking on the gates. She's still bringing her place. She's still fasting and she's still crying out. She still hasn't forsaken the Lord of heaven. She hasn't gone after other gods. She's still at the house of the Lord. And she still honors him in her barrenness. And what we need to hear this morning is what you do with your barrenness matters. How you respond to pain will largely shape the trajectory of your life. Some of us feel like we've been dealt a bad hand. I know what it's like to feel disadvantaged, left out, left wanting. You feel like God's blessing has passed you by. He blesses everyone in your life, but never blesses you. But how you respond to these thoughts will shape your future, shape your relationship with the Lord. We like to pick up the victim's complex, look for somebody to blame. We curse God, quit coming to church, quit reading your Bible. Look at your friends and family and say, I I tried that Christianity thing and look where it left me. We love that saying in the church, don't get bitter, but get better. I think Hannah shows us something different. She doesn't get bitter. She gets broken, man. She lets him strip her of all of her pride. There's some season in your life where you've got to let God rob you of all of your dignity. Sooner or later, you've got to embrace and learn humility. Lay on the altar bare and exposed. Every now and then, you need to stain the carpet with your snot. That's okay, by the way. We embrace snot on the altar. We're snotty people. At some point, you quit acting like you've got it figured out. You get honest. You acknowledge the fact that you can't fix the mess you got. We don't live by the strength of our arm, but the cry of our prayers. And rather than looking for someone to blame, she's searching for God. Where are you in the midst of my pain? She's still going to the temple. She still showed up. She'll pass on the food. She'll pass on the drink. She, again, is not trying to drink away her misery. She's waiting for dinner to be over so she can make her way down to the temple. To the house of God. She's going to the house of the Lord, even if nobody else is going. Faith is sincere. She doesn't understand. She ain't got to understand. Just keeps coming, keeps praying. And again, we'll watch God use this little barren, broken, humble woman. And we again learn this lesson that God uses the weak and God uses the vulnerable. And God likes to make himself known through the lives of the weak. He loves the barren and the broken. Their weakness is not weakness to God. It's opportunity for him to show off his power and his strength to a vessel that's not full of themselves. 
Our problem is every time we feel weak, we start blaming God and we walk away from him, not realizing that God may be making you low so that he can make his glory and power known. In the seasons where you feel weak, you don't run away from God. You press into God because in your weakness, he has the opportunity to show up and show off and make his power known. And sometimes he exposes just how weak you are so he can expose just how great and magnificent and wonderful he really is. We run from God when we think he's withholding blessing. We don't like when he's asked us to be patient. We hate watching others live in blessing while we seem to be living in the wilderness. So we get mad and walk away. He may be breaking you in order to use you. It may be in the pressing that the anointing of God is beginning to flow. It may be in the wilderness and in the lowliness that you really begin to hunger and ache. And, and listen to me, many of us, this isn't a condemning, I'm not, I'm not condemning right now, I'm just saying this. Many in the Christian walk live kind of half-hearted and stale and kind of this easy pace. But sometimes God drags you down in the wilderness because he wants to teach you to burn, man. He wants to teach you to live with passion and to live with conviction. He wants you to, to feel the fire of the Holy Ghost locked up within your rib cage. And sometimes it's in the wilderness that he allows that to happen. Don't run from him when you feel bare and run to him when you feel barren run to him when you feel barren second point is I don't think she came to this place of spiritual maturity on her own I think we find in Hannah a woman who's learned from the stories of old Dr. Robert Bergen is a commentator on on this book says that she is presented as the most pious woman in all of the Old Testament. He says um, she is shown going up to the Lord's house alone. No other woman in the Old Testament is mentioned doing this. He says Hannah is the only woman shown making and fulfilling a vow to the Lord. Her prayer is the longest prayer recorded of any woman. Scripture tells us that she's a woman of great faith. The scriptures honor her. The scriptures revere her. But I'm certain she's paid attention to the stories of the women of God who have gone before her. She's not the first barren woman in Israel. She won't be the last barren woman in Israel. John the Baptist will come out of one. I think she learns from the mistakes of the best. Remember when Sarah is found barren but convinces Abraham that he will have a son through her slave Hagar. Genesis 16, 1-5 says this, Now Sarai, Abram, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai had said. And so after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises you. May the Lord judge between you and me. I think Hannah remembers Sarah's haste. The word of the Lord was that they would have a child, Abram and Sarah. I think, I think she remembers that Sarah lacked patience. I think she remembers the consequences of that sin. That's a mess that they, they're dealing with there. She doesn't manipulate. She doesn't rush. 
She's still low. We don't find her begging Elkanah to take another woman on her behalf. She's not scheming to find a way to outdo Peninnah. She'll just be patient, embrace her pain, and keep pressing in in prayer. Genesis chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb? She said, here is my servant. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. And I think Peninnah would love to see Hannah envious like Rachel. She considers Hannah to be cursed. Here, verse 6 through 8 again. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. It seems really clear here that like Jacob and Rachel, Elkanah favors Hannah. But she's refused to boast in it. She doesn't respond to Peninnah's glares. We don't get any fat jokes. There's no, your face looks like my dog's butt. There's none of that. I like to use that one. Just kidding, I don't say that. We don't get any, like, any kind of, I'm throwing stones back, trying to embarrass you. Peninnah is married to a man who's in love with another woman. That's enough pain. Hannah doesn't seem to rub it in her face. She doesn't react. She just fasts, prays, makes her way to the sanctuary, passes the old man of God who sat by the door, and she begins to pour herself out. text says she weeps bitterly the hebrew there literally reads uh weeping she wept it's a semitic language thing sometimes when you get a word twice it means to to emphasize the the act so it literally weeping she wept or weeping she's weeping the king james uh translated she wept sore some say wept in anguish Weeping, she wept, emphasizes her pain. Where you express your pain matters. Where you take your pain matters. Who you talk to about your pain matters. Watch where she takes it. Watch where she goes with it. Again, she ain't ain't talking to anybody else about what's going on. She went straight to the house of the Lord. And watch the way she expresses it. Watch the way she talks about it. She's talking to the only one that can do anything about it. That's a lesson you ought to learn right there. Talk to somebody who can do something about your problem rather than just venting. But on her way in, she passes Eli. And this is where the narrative line of the book here intends to show us conflict it tends for us to draw contrast from the the life and posture of Eli and the life and posture of Hannah now Eli's most likely too old to serve as a priest now it tells us that um he he calls him a priest but it tells us that his two sons are serving as priests but he's just sitting at the door um of the house of God he's guarding the sacred place He watches this young woman posture herself in prayer, move her lips, although there's nothing coming out of her mouth. And here we catch the first glimpse of how out of tune Eli really is with the moving of the Spirit. The seasoned spiritual leader is so unfamiliar with brokenness that he assumes it to be drunkenness. 
Are there any broken and humble people coming to pray under Eli's leadership? Why would he assume that someone weeping in the house of God is drunk rather than in prayer? He must have more drunks rolling around the house of God than he does people of prayer. There's something missing, something not clicking right in the heart of Eli. It's our first glance into his fall, and we need to take note. It's not enough to just go through the motions of spirituality. Eli is dressed like a man of God. He's sitting where an aged man of God ought to sit. He knows the lingo. He's familiar with the culture, but the man's heart is stale, and his faith is cold. He hasn't heard the sound of real prayer in some years. And our altars ought to regularly be filled with heartfelt prayer. The sound of intercession ought to be commonplace. Our kids, grandkids, people coming up ought to know the sound of prayer. Ought to know what it is to see a man or woman bent over at the altar contending with the Lord. To see a man or woman throw themselves before God should not be off-putting. It should be commonplace. And if our altars become barren, you can be sure that we will become barren. Eli has sons, but God is about to make him barren. Hannah has no children, but God is about to make her fruitful. All because of what they do here at the altar. All because of what's going on in their hearts. All because Hannah's got some burn and some passion, some things going on in here. And the man of God, although he's old, age, seasoned, knows all the right lingo. All the people look to him as a great man of God. The man of God is cold and stale and God says, I'll pass you by. I think Eli's gone through the motions for years. I think he's tired, stale. The fire on the altar has gone out years ago, but the motions must be gone through. And God forbid we come to that place. God forbid we settle into staleness. God forbid we exalt routine over the presence of God. God forbid we get so focused on programs that we forget that the presence of the living God dwells amongst us. God forbid we make our style and appearance and coming off as spiritual more important than God's spirit actually piercing the heart of broken people. Watch Hannah's response. She turns to Eli, tells him what's happening in her heart. She's not offended at this accusation. If I'm praying in the altar and you call me drunk, I'm kicking you where the sun don't shine. Don't come at me with that. She's not offended. Eli shows compassion. Go in peace. May the Lord grant you your petition. And the son is conceived. She says she names him Samuel. For she asks for him from the Lord. The name Samuel literally means the name of the Lord. Commentators, scholars struggle to understand exactly what was going on there. But this confrontation between Eli and Hannah is extremely significant. It's the first chapter, the first little piece of a story that we'll see unfold in the weeks to come. And her son will rise in influence as Eli and his sons dramatically fall. And we learn this, that God is not impressed with Eli nor his son's position of power. He's not impressed by their family legacy. He's not impressed by the fact that they know all the spiritual lingo. They can talk the talk and walk the walk. He's not impressed with their the fact that they dress like a priest or they look like a priest or they wear their hair like a priest. 
He's not impressed that we can sing all the right songs, that we dress the part, that we use the right lingo. We can, on the outside, look perfectly spiritual, like we've got it all together. We can, on the outside, use all of our Christian needs and bless God, and on the inside, be totally cold and stale, and God will pass us by. He's not satisfied with lukewarm, stale hearts. You can know all the Bible trivia in the world and be found cold. may sit us down. It's easy to be excited and excited seizing. But God's looking for the woman who burns and continues in prayer, even in her barrenness. Are you stale this morning? Are we stale? God sits down the sons of Eli, this prestigious priest, and uses the son of an unimportant, uninfluential, broken and barren woman. And he teaches us what he'll teach the son of Hannah some years later as another hard-hearted leader is being replaced by a young, passionate lover of God. God rejects Saul, this big man. Remember, Scripture says he's head and shoulders above the rest. This big man, strong man. Tell Samuel to go to the house of Jesse, anoint one of his sons. 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 through 8. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance, on the height of his stature. I've rejected him. Don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Don't look on what's going on on the outside. I've rejected him. After all of David's older brothers passed by, Jesse calls his youngest son from the fields, and the scripture says that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. I think God is saying this morning, I will continually pass over those who outwardly seem fit for the job, for those who are inwardly humble, hungry, passionately in pursuit of me. I will walk by the seemingly gifted to embrace the broken, humble, hungry, low man or woman of God. As a church, we have to recognize that God's not moved by our beautiful building, not impressed with numbers or our talented musicians. I'm better than them anyway, just so you know. It's not true. I can take Micah in a one-on-one. One day we'll get a little ring in here. We'll do a little octagon, and we'll do, we'll do me versus Micah, and you guys can see some good stuff. I'll watch a little bit of wrestling in my days, if you know what I'm saying. That white trash upbringing gets you. We can have the best worship in the world, the best teaching in the world, the best marketing in the world, the best facilities. We can be the best looking people on this island and still be rejected. We could still be passed by, at least in the sense of rejected in the sense of who God's going to use, how God's going to use them. God will pass us by if we don't keep our hearts hungry, low, humble, desperate. 
He's after people who really love him and his gospel, a people who are really desperate. And Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, remember the church at Ephesus is a large church with some of the best leadership the church has ever known. The apostle John, most scholars believe that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was at Ephesus. Paul goes to Ephesus. Best leadership, best teaching. In Revelation 2, 5, Jesus says to them, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He says, I'll remove my presence and grace. I'll remove you from a church, uh, as a church, from a place of influence, from having the ability to light up dark places. Do what you did at first. So in conclusion, I just want to say a few more things. God uses this barren woman. He makes her fruitful, answers her cries, uses her son for his purpose. God honors her And she goes down in biblical history as a woman of sincere faith. Scholars thousands and thousands of years later say she must be the most pious woman in all of scripture. And Eli, this man of stature, influence, will be removed from his place of prominence. God is not satisfied with cold hearts. God is not looking for people to go through the motions. We'll see later that Eli's compromised and allowed sin to make her bed in his home. And I believe with all my heart, I really believe this, that God is getting ready to use us. That's some of us trying to get ready with some media stuff. We want to get ready so our balcony can function as overflow. We think God is getting ready to use us in this city. We think we're about to mess some stuff up, mess some things up. We believe that. But whether we rise or fall will be determined by what we do at the altar. Whether we rise or fall will be determined by how we steward our hearts. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.